Let us pray. Father, we believe that all Holy Scripture is written for our learning, and so we pray that we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this, your holy word, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. There's something seriously wrong with Jonah. I mean, as we continue on our walk through the book of Jonah this morning, if we haven't realized it by now, certainly here at the end of chapter 3, verse 10, into the beginning of chapter 4, just these three verses, we're going to realize there's something seriously wrong with Jonah. But here's the thing. It can also be seriously wrong in us as well. Here are these words from Jonah chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. When God saw all that the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it infuriated Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Three verses, and we can finally see just how seriously wrong Jonah is. Something is seriously wrong with Jonah. The problem is, it can be the same for us. We can have something seriously wrong in us just like Jonah. See, in these three verses, here's what we see. We see God forgive the Ninevites, forgive the enemies of Israel, forgive the Assyrians. And Jonah is furious about it. God forgives, Jonah is furious because Jonah has already forgotten the whale. He's already forgotten the fish. He's already forgotten how he has already been forgiven. See, we begin by looking at the fact that God forgives the Ninevites. Chapter 3, verse 10. God saw what the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil way, and he relented of the disaster that he said he was going to do to them and did not do it. It is an amazing picture of forgiveness. Amazing forgiveness. These desperately evil people, God forgives and we love forgiveness stories. We love to hear forgiveness stories. They grab a hold of us. It gets our heart beating. We say, oh, yes, 
We, we get so excited when we see those examples of forgiveness, radical forgiveness. I think probably one of the best examples in Western literature that has been popularized just in the last few decades within musical theater is Les Miserables, right? The story of Jean Valjean, especially that moment. And you know what moment I'm talking about. Those of you who love Les Mis, those of you who don't, I don't know what to do for you. But those of you who love Les Mis, that moment when Jean Valjean, the, the criminal, the accused, freed, paroled criminal, taken up in residence by the bishop, the goodly bishop, then steals from the bishop and runs and then is caught by the police. And you know that moment. The police drag Valjean in and they say, tell his reverence your story. Let us see if he's impressed. You were lodging here last night. You were the honest bishop's guest. And then out of Christian goodness, when he learned about your plight, you maintained he made a present of this silver. And then the bishop says, that is right. But my friend, you left so early, something surely slipped your mind. You forgot I gave these also candlesticks. Would you leave the best behind? So, messieurs, you may release him, for this man is spoken true. I commend you for your duty, and God's blessing go with you. And then to Valjean, but remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man by the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood. God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul for God. I'm here all week, but... Um, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, and you're all gonna run home and watch the movie. But the point is, and that's a great thing to do on a Sunday afternoon. But seriously, we love forgiveness moments. We love forgiveness stories. But we struggle to live them out in our own lives. We love stories of forgiveness. Something beats within us that says that is right. But yet we struggle to live them out. It's like C.S. Lewis says, everyone agrees that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until you have to practice it. We love forgiveness stories, but we struggle to live them out because the forgiveness we see in scripture, the quality of forgiveness that is described from this God is strange, is foreign to our world. It's nothing like we've ever seen. It's even arguably offensive to some. Such forgiveness. I mean, in a world that tells you that God helps those who help themselves, this God is gracious. In a world that tells you, you know, they probably just had it coming to them. This God is merciful. In a world that so instantly tweets and Instagrams and reposts our outrage all over the world on social media. This is a God who is slow to anger. In a world where every relationship seems to be built on some kind of conditions or contracts, or transactional relationship. This is a God who is steadfast in love. And in a world where, if we're honest, once our anger and wrath gets going, there ain't no stopping it. This is a God who relents from the disaster. The kind of forgiveness that we see offered 
to these Ninevites, to these Assyrians, to these enemies of Israel and enemies of God, to these evil people, is a strange and foreign and wonderful and seemingly impossible kind of forgiveness. It's like in Luke chapter 17 when Jesus says to the disciples, if your brother sins against you seven times and comes and repents and asks forgiveness seven times, you must forgive him. And what do his disciples respond by saying? They say, Lord, increase our faith. This is a forgiveness so unknown in our world. And yet it's what God shows to the Ninevites. And Jonah's reaction He is furious. In fact, in verse one of chapter four, it says that Jonah's anger, angry, the root of that word is actually burning. He is literally on fire with anger. He is burning and raging. And I love how verse one in our ESV translates that Jonah, we're told in response, but Jonah, but it was, it was, it was um, displeasing to Jonah. It was upsetting to Jonah exceedingly. But you know what the Hebrew translates literally as? It was exceedingly evil to Jonah. The Jonah looked on what God did with the Ninevites and said, this is evil what you've done. And you know, I wish I could say I I never feel like Jonah, but actually there's a whole lot of Jonah in me. You know, I grew up on an island I grew up in Vancouver, Vancouver Island uh, on the west coast of Canada where you couldn't get off the island without getting on either an airplane or uh, getting on a ferry. So most of us would take the ferry to get off the island. And when you wanted to get off the island, you'd have to line up in this very long ferry line. I mean, we're talking, you could be in there for hours sometimes, lined up on the side of the highway, just waiting your turn. Key, waiting your turn. Well, there'd always be somebody especially when you've been waiting for some inordinate amount of time, who would come along the shoulder of the highway and just zip past everybody, hundreds of cars, because you know what he's going to do at the end? He's going to pop in at the front. And in that moment, when it would happen, as pagan as Vancouver Island was, everybody started praying when that happened. Every one of those cars. They're praying for justice, right? They're praying for red and blue lights on the side of the road. They're praying that a police officer would be there. And if there was one, oh, how the hallelujah chorus would break out from those cars because we saw justice brought that day. True evil taking place and justice was brought down. We knew in the core of our beings, it must be so. But most of the time we would pray and there'd be no police officer there and the guy would get away with it and you'd hear the howls of rage. This is unjust. This is wrong. He can't just get away with it. We need to understand what's brewing around inside Jonah and realize how much it brews around inside of us. Because Jonah's got it partly right, but he's also got it partly wrong. See, the part that is right in him is this cry for justice. He's looking at the evil of the Ninevites saying, God, are you really just going to sort of override all that they've done with your grace, your mercy? I mean, come on. See, the challenge we run into is we have to face that God must be good. God must have an ability to look on evil and, and, and call it what it is, evil, and recognize that evil is not some sort of thing that you can just sort of shove off or or play games with. 
Imagine, for example, I mean, I'm talking about the justice of a car line for a ferry. Now imagine the worst of evils in this world. You got that in your mind now? Now imagine that God simply says, you know what? Don't worry about it. It doesn't really matter. It's all good. Just get over it. It doesn't really matter. It's all good. Just get over it. That God would not be good. That God would be, in fact, an evil God. That's what Jonah is accusing him of in many ways. You see, what Miroslav Volf, the Croatian theologian who survived the ethnic cleansing of the Yugoslav wars, how he puts it is this way. He says, if God is not angry at sin, at injustice, and does not put an end to violence and deception, then he is a God that is not worthy of our worship. God must be good. God must judge evil if he's to be good. And we know it in the core of our beings, not just in car lines, but every day of our lives. We cry out for the goodness of God. How can he then also be gracious? Now here's the problem. Jonah should know better. Why? Because Jonah's a prophet of Israel. Jonah is a well-schooled, well-educated, successful prophet of Israel. Here's what the prophets of Israel knew. Here's what, frankly, all of Israel knew. Is that God was both good and gracious. He says it in verse 2 of chapter 4. I knew that you were a gracious God. I knew, Jonah knew, I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from the disaster. Why does every prophet of Israel know that? Because of the key moment in Israel's history, the key theophany, the key moment when God revealed himself to Moses. Everyone in Israel, especially the prophets, knew this moment. Because in that moment, remember when Moses says to God, he says, God, show me your glory. And what he's saying with that is, show me your fullness. Show me your character. Show me everything about you. I want to see your heart. I want to know how how you tick. I want to know everything about you. Show me your glory. And God says, you cannot look on my face and live. And remember, he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. And he says, so here's what I'll do. I will show you my glory, but I'll pass by. And you can sort of look at the backside of my glory. Right, that's chapter 33. Chapter 34, Moses is in position. The glory of God is going to be shown to a mere mortal up on Sinai. And what do we read? Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Where do you think Jonah got this phraseology? Love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But know what comes next. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And you want to say, oh, I don't know how much I like that second part. I like that God is gracious and merciful, but the whole will not hold the guilty, will, will not forgive the guilty, will, will, will bring this judgment on generation after generation. I mean, I've never seen that part, you know, stitched onto a quilt before. Like it's always the first part, but not the second. But here's what Jonah knows, is that God is providing a picture into his very character to say, listen, you want to know who I am? You must know two things about me. I am both good and I am gracious. 
And you must hold the two together. I am good. I will judge evil because it must be judged. But I am gracious. I desire not the death of a sinner, but rather that they would turn from their wickedness and live. And you want to say, how could a God hold together those two things? Well, here's the fact. Jonah knows better. He knows that God has revealed this about himself. We know how God actually did it. How God actually made it manifest to us. We know better than Jonah and the prophets knew. Because many, many years later on another hill, God revealed his glory, not just to Moses, but to the whole of the world. And in that moment, showing the fullness of himself, the fullness of his character, he showed the world his goodness and his grace on that moment when all of the sin of humanity was brought onto that hilltop and placed upon a man and the full weight and wrath and punishment of God came down rightly on that hilltop, on that man. And that man's name was Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God, bearing everything wrong in you and in me. God brought the wrath that must be brought upon sin for his goodness to be true. But the wrath in his grace didn't fall on us. It fell on himself. The wrath came down on the son of God. He bore our sin. 2 Corinthians 5 21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. God, in his goodness and in his grace, demonstrates how he can still be good and hate the sin and still be gracious and love the sinner. Goodness and grace brought onto that hilltop at Calvary. You know, it's kind of like a rough metaphor, the judge who sits on the bench and a young woman's brought in and she's got something she's done that's harsh enough to get a heavy monetary penalty, not quite enough to go to jail. And so the judge, listening to all the evidence, then makes his verdict and declares her guilty. She's guilty, it's true, and declares the punishment. Here's the fine. The gavel comes down, but then the judge's robes come off and he steps around to the front and goes in the middle of the courtroom and pulls out his own checkbook and writes the amount of the fine and hands it to the court clerk because it turns out the defendant is his own daughter. Now, I told that story at the nine o'clock service and there was a judge in the front row over there shaking his head. And I was like, I know that he never would have been trying the case if it was his own daughter, but it's a metaphor, your honor. But the point being... This is what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. God has come to bear the rightful wrath that was due to us because of his goodness, but because of his grace, he chose to bore it on our behalf. You know, there's a controversy about 10 years ago over a song that Kristen and Keith Getty wrote in Christ alone. It's a great song. Some of you may know the controversy. One of the more liberal denominations in the country, it wasn't the Episcopalians, don't worry, but one of them, I won't name who they are, but they decided not to include that song in their hymn book. They said, we're not going to put that in the hymnal, in Christ alone. And it was all because of one phrase that they said, we just can't put that in our hymnal. And it was this phrase, the phrase that said, um, I, I got it wrong at the nine o'clock, so I want to get this right. Um, Till on that cross, 
where Jesus died. I sang already today, okay? Till on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the love of Christ I live. And they said, you, you, you can't talk about the wrath of God being satisfied, that we have a God who's got wrath that needs to be satisfied. No, it's the love of God magnified. And the Gettys, to their credit, refused to change the hymn and it was left out of the hymnal. Because the truth of the matter is, there is such a thing as the wrath of God that must exist if he is a good God and that evil is real in this world and it will be put to an end. There is wrath, but in his love and grace, the wrath fell on himself instead of on us. 1 John says, if we say we have no sin We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he goes on to say, if anyone sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the righteous one. And he is the propitiation for our sins. He has become the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He has stood in place for our sins. He is the way that God can both be good and gracious. But why is Jonah so furious? Because Jonah has already forgotten the fish. Oh, how quickly we forget how much we've been forgiven. Jonah even references that moment in his complaint to God here in verse two, when he says, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. You wanna say, it's on your own lips, Jonah, condemning you for what was he doing when he ran to Tarshish? We're told in chapter one, he's not running from a call from God. He was running from the presence of God. He was not just rebelling, he was rejecting God. Moses rebelled, rejected, and ran from God. And where did it end him up? It ended him up in the pit, in the belly of hell itself, in the middle of that fish right where he deserved to be because of his rebellion. And what happened in the belly of that fish? God met him and forgave him. Grace, mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting of that disaster. Do you see it? That Jonah is furious about the very grace and mercy that has been poured out already on him. He just doesn't want it shared around. And the problem is we're very much like Jonah. We forget the fish. We forget how much we have been forgiven. It's like that parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18. It's a very poignant parable. It has three characters in it. There's a king, there's a debtor, and the friend of the debtor. And and the king has this major debt. The the, the man has a debt towards the king. It's a debt of 10,000 talents, which is an extraordinary amount of money. And he owes it to the king, and he begs the king to forgive the debt. And the king, in his grace and mercy, forgives the debt. And then the man walks out the door, Jesus says, and finds a friend of his who owes him a hundred denarii, a much smaller coin. And he grabs him by the throat and chokes him and says, pay me what you owe me. The king finds out. He hauls him back in and says, you wicked servants. I forgave that massive debt of yours because you begged it of me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had 
mercy on you. And you know what's interesting when you look at the parable? A talent, 10,000 talents, a talent was 20 years wages as a skilled laborer. So if you translate that into today's currency, it's about $20 billion. I did the math, okay? It's $20 billion. And the amount that his friend owes him, uh, 100 denarii, is about $18,000, okay? So in modern day terms, we're talking about a debt of $20 billion being forgiven and another debt of $18,000. The one man is forgiven this and cannot forgive this to his fellow neighbor. I say it to you to show how ridiculous a number this is. Jesus is using ridiculous numbers because he wants to show us how ridiculous we are when we will not forgive. We say it every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. Every time. We like the first half, not the second half. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Sometimes it's better that we use the different translations. Say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Kind of packs a punch when you say it that way. The challenge we face, friends, is that we, like Jonah, so often will forget the incredible, incredible debt that has been paid on our behalf. We forget our fish moments. We forget that we have been so forgiven. Can you imagine for a minute though what happens when we remember more regularly? When we are fully aware of our fish moments, aware of just how much we've been forgiven, how much that changes the world around us, how it changes the way we interact with those around us? The late Tim Keller in one of his last tweets said this, he says, we would be much more Again, I'm going to get this wrong, so I'm going, to, I'm going to read it. I got it wrong in the first service. My memory is failing me. He said, we'd be more patient and kind with people and less hurt if we regularly remembered that we all have deep core faults. I'm going to say that again. We would be more patient and kind with people and less hurt if we regularly remembered we all have deep core faults faults. As 1 Timothy 1.15 says, this is a saying that is true and worthy of all to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. And Paul meant it when he wrote those words. Paul remembered the fish he had been saved out of. Jonah didn't. Will we? Will we remember the forgiveness that has been shown to us? There's something seriously wrong in Jonah and it can be seriously wrong in us when we forget the fish. When we forget the forgiveness been offered. And yet, we can remember. God gives us means by which we will remember. I want to be like John Newton you know, the writer of Amazing Grace, John Newton, who, you know, slave trade ship runner, turned, converted into a pastor, into evangelist, an abolitionist, fighting against the slave trade. What did John Newton say at the end of his life about remembering? So quick to forget, but remembering. He said, as my memory fades me, two things I remember clearly. Oh, Lord, that that could be on my lips. As my 
memory fades, two things I remember clearly, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. We remember each week as we're brought into church. We hear the story of our forgiveness through the liturgy, through the word of God, and we hear it and receive it as we come to the rail. We remember yet again just how much we've been forgiven when we hear, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood shed for you, and then what does Jesus say? Do this in remembrance of me. Come to church and remember. Remember you are forgiven. Can you imagine how the world would be changed around you and around me? Should we walk out these doors and truly remember how much we've been forgiven? And people look in and say, there's something different about you. There's something different about the way you interact with other people. There's something different about the way you handle conflict and challenge and even controversy. There's something different about you and we can say, yes, what's different about me is I'm a forgiven person and you can be forgiven too. Will we remember? Let's not be like Jonah. Let's remember. Let's remember the fish. And let us give thanks. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.